Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. Grab a seat and we'll get started. Well, we got somebody excited anyway. There you go. (laughs) All right, we're going to start our Bible study tonight. Glad you all are here. Let's start, let's open up with a word of prayer to bless this word tonight, bless our time in the presence of God. Father, we just come before you tonight, Father, and we thank you for each person here tonight. Father, we thank you for you being here tonight. Your presence is here, Father, and I just pray it permeates each one of us to the deepest part of our our soul, our spirit, Father, and that you will show us the things that you want us to see tonight, that you will reveal your word to us, Father, the word, uh, the Bible says that the entrance of your word brings light and that where the word of the king is there is power father and we're dependent on that tonight father so i pray blessings upon this time tonight blessings upon your word we we praise you for your word we praise you that you give us a light that we need a lamp to our feet father that you guide us in everything that we do father and if we'll just pay attention if we'll be diligent students of the word study of your word father that you will reveal the things that we need to see you will uh, uh, grace us with knowledge and truth that we need to, to go through these days that we're living in And we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for each person here tonight that's hungry for the word. And I pray, Father, that you will satisfy them tonight with uh, with the things that you want to show them tonight, Father, to every man his portion. Father, I believe you have something for everyone tonight, and I believe you have a word tonight to, to reveal to us. So thank you for that, Father. We praise you, and we thank you for your healing power that goes out and goes forth in your, from your word, Father. And we thank you for those that are, have testimonies of healing. We praise you, Father, and we lift up those, Father, that need healing in their bodies, Father. We, we declare it right now in the mighty name of Jesus that they are healed from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet by the stripes of Jesus. We declare it with our mouth. We believe in it, trust in you, Father. We thank you, Father, that uh, your word is true and that we can depend upon it. Thank you for this time tonight. We praise you and give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are defending the faith, learning how to defend the faith. We're, we're studying the things that we believe in, is in this church the things that we need to be ready to give an answer? Our matter of fact, our our lesson starts out with two command, two two uh, charges that we have that uh, the Bible gives us that the Word of God gives us. We are commanded in First Peter three fifteen, always be ready to give it a defense or an answer for the hope that's inside of you, and then uh, we are exhorted in Jude uh, verse three to contend earnestly for the faith, fight with all your strength to win. Because I promise you there's, there's, a, there's a spiritual things in high places out there that are trying to take us down, trying to take down the Word of God, trying to take down Christianity. The attack on Christianity across the, the land is the greatest it's probably ever been. But that's all right. We have the upper hand because we are led by Jesus. We're led by the Word, by the word of God. So thank you for that. But anyway, that's our charge. I want to recap from what we did on lesson number four last week. We studied... Uh, the theological term hypostatic union, which basically is a word or concept, trying to explain how Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, could be both fully 100% God and fully 100% man, the God-man, two distinct natures, not mixed or diluted, united without loss of separate identity. Truly a mystery that we are incapable of fully understanding with our finite minds. But we can accept it by faith, knowing that one day all mysteries will be completely revealed 
here are a couple of scriptures I believe that will encourage you in this. And remember, you know, we're, we're learning this stuff by faith. We, we accept these things by faith, and we will one day know the, know the whole story. But 1 John 3, uh, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Thank God for that day of coming, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So we maybe not have all the full revelation right now, but uh, the revelation will come when we see him as he is, for we shall see him as he is. Thank God for that. Now, so as we continue our study of what we believe and what we are defending and contending for about the deity and humanity of Jesus, once again, here are our AOL belief statements. I want to keep these in front of you because this is what we, this is what we believe in. You need to know what you believe in. So we believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, is eternal in existence and is the Word of God, become flesh, and is, as is stated in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born on the, uh, of the Virgin Mary. And we believe that Jesus is indeed fully God, fully human, and that he lived his entire life on the earth without sin to become the substitutionary blood atonement or sacrifice for all of man by suffering the agonizing and humiliating death on the cross. And that has application tonight. We'll see as we go forward. And I encourage you, like I always do, if you haven't done it, go on our, our uh, AOL website and uh, uh, go through those things of what we believe. You need to know. I mean, there's some things on there you probably didn't know. Hey, I didn't know we believed that. And, uh, and uh, look at it and, and uh, be a student of that and, and uh, instruct yourself on that. But I encourage you to do that. And it's, it's an interesting read. So last week in closing, the lesson four, study about the hypostatic union. I know there was a lot of stuff probably, I mean, I hope it didn't totally go over your head, but I think you learned something But uh, the, about the hypostatic union. I, like I said, I don't, it's probably not something you'll even hear out of seminary or Bible school or something like that. But if it ever comes out, you do have a, a little exposure to it. But one of the proof texts we used uh, Philippians 2 verses 5 through 9, I said that we would come back to that later and and look at it in detail. So this is the passage. I want to read it again. It's actually uh, verses 5 through 8 is the part that I want to read through. And I want to uh, add something to that. But anyway, this is the verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Keep that in mind. That's a very key one tonight. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and a, and a coming and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And to go along with that, we'll be adding this second part passage uh, because it has direct application for what we're going to do in order to complete our study for tonight and get the full emphasis we want out of it. Therefore, uh, this is Philippians uh, 2, and we're with uh, the continuing verses after 8, 9 through 11. So, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And verse 11 says, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to, to the glory of, of God the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. Would you all agree? 
the name above all names. So in this, this section of Scripture, verse, uh, I mean, chapter 2, verse 5 through uh, 11, uh, my Bible says this, it's, called, it's subtitled, The Humbled and Exalted Christ. It may be in yours too that way. In this particular passage, the Apostle Paul is presenting probably the most concise statement in the whole of the New Testament concerning the preexistence, the incarnation, and the exaltation of Christ. Both the deity and humanity of Christ are stressed and in focus here. That's what we've been talking about, the deity and humanity of Christ. That's why I say we've got to go through this passage because it has a lot of meaning and bearing on our understanding of those things and what we, why we believe. The study and detail of this packet, passage will greatly help us to under, further understand and support why we believe what we believe about the deity and humanity of Jesus and why we should so vigorously defend and fight for it. So here, I want to give you a little uh, contextual, contextual setup. In other words, we need everything, you need to get everything in context. How many of you know that context is important when we're studying the Word of God, right? And we need to keep that in our forefront of our mind. So the Apostle Paul, he's writing this epistle uh, or, or letter to the church at Philippi from his first imprisonment traditionally assigned to be at Rome. Uh, some scholars believe he could have been imprisoned at Ephesus, but a lot of uh, evidence shows that it was at Rome. Even though he is writing from prison, this letter is considered uplifting and encouraging, often called the epistle of joy due to the, to the recurrence of words joy and rejoice throughout. Matter of fact, uh, Pastor, you alluded to that this morning when we were talking at uh, 6.30 time in the morning. So, very good. I told Cindy again. I said, there he goes, preaching my message tonight. What I'm teaching, but you did good. In this very personal letter, Paul is thanking the Philippians for their care for him and the gifts sent to him, encouraging even encouraging them that even though he is in he was in prison, the message of the gospel was being accomplished. He, you know, there was people preaching the message of the gospel, even people that were preaching it with the with the wrong motives. But he was encouraged by that that the word of the God was getting out, even if they were in the in the wrong motives. They weren't false teachers, but they were just preaching out of maybe a, a motive of selfish ambition or something like that. But he encouraged them likewise in the trials that they were going through the the church at Philippi, that the life of the follower of Christ is going to involve suffering. Verse 29 of the, of the first uh, uh, chapter of that book says, for you, for you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So things identified later in the letter, if you read the whole uh, book of uh, Philippians, you'll see these things, but it shows that it is also, this letter, was, this letter that he's writing was also an appeal for unity because of quarrels within and false teaching from without, which would or could or would cause division. And it is from that appeal for unity that we come to the focal, uh, focus passage that we want to look at tonight. So again, we'll read this, uh, Philippians verse 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, the English Standard Version gives us a little different way of a rendering of it. Uh, this is what it says, and it, read it, we'll read it through verse 8. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's the word I wanted you to get. The first, the first passage said, but made himself of no reputation. 
this um, version says, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this, this passage is called, and we're going to get into some Greek, so go ahead and start moaning if you want to, but that's all right. We're, how many of you know we need, to, we need to get into the Greek because we need a better understanding of some of this? But this passage is known as the kenosis passage. The term kenosis refers to the doctrine of Christ's self-emptying in his car, in incarnation, which is what we're talking about where it says up there above or where we read in that scripture just past where he uh, emptied himself. The word comes from the Greek of Philippians 2.7, and depending on which translation you use, says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That was the English Standard Version on that, but a lot of them say emptied himself or uh, voided himself or things like that, uh, made of no reputation. Or as the New King James Version says, but made of himself no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. The word translated for emptied or made of no reputation is a form of the Greek word kinoo, from which we get the word kenosis. Kinoo means to make empty, to abase, to neutralize, falsify, to make of none effect, of no reputation, void, to be in vain. That's just some of the things that you find when you do the search for in the Strong's or uh, the interlinear uh, study. Verse 7, but emptied himself, made himself no reputation by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The emptying activity is what is termed as the kenosis of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about. Notice in that verse 7 above, it does not specify what the Son of God emptied himself of. And here we have to be careful not to go beyond what the Scripture says. Jesus did not empty himself of his divine attributes. No such attributes are mentioned in the verse. And it's obvious in the Gospels that Jesus possessed the power and wisdom of God. We can read that. We see all those things that he did. He had all the divine attributes, omniscience. We know these three, the big O's. The omniscience, all-knowing, omnipotence, all-powerful, and omnipresence, present everywhere at the same time, as well as others. Calming the storm is just one display of the, uh, Jesus' divine power. We see this in Mark 4.39, where he, then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. How many of you know, I mean, we, I know we have power to do that by faith, but I don't know, I haven't seen anybody yet actually stop a storm by themselves, you know, in there. I, I, I consider that uh, him being all-powerful, even having power over the weather pattern. So I'd say that was his uh, omnipotence to be able to do that. And there are many other examples of the divine power that could be mentioned, like turning water into wine, walking on water, healing the blind and the lame and the lepers, multiplying the fish and the loaves and raising the dead and on and on. There's all kinds of things that we could talk about, a list there. Uh, the many times that he, he uh, healed and raised the dead uh, uh, is... There were multiple times in, in, the, in the Gospels. So in coming to earth, Jesus, the Son of God, did not cease to be God, but he did not become a, and he did not become a lesser God. Whatever the empty entailed, Jesus remained fully God. Colossians 2.9 verifies that. It says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, when he was in bodily form, still in the flesh, all the fullness of the Godhead still dwelt in him. In light of these scriptures, 
And in light of the context of this passage to the Philippian church, it seems better to think of Christ's emptying of himself as a laying aside of the rights and privileges that were his in heaven. Rather than stay on his throne in heaven in all of his glory, Jesus made himself nothing, as the NIV translates the verse. The New Living Testament translation says, this, says when he came to earth, he gave up his divine privileges. So we say he veiled his glory. And that's what one of, the, one of his divine privileges. He chose to occupy the position of a lowly slave when he come to, when he come to earth. So one Bible scholar who wrote on this subject, Charles Hodge, stated it like this. He willingly gave up the exercise and expression of his glory and sometimes chose not to use his other powers, though he retained them fully. See, can you imagine if Jesus had come and had, born, had been born with the full glory of God, what would that have done? I mean, what would that have done to the people? I mean, they would have recognized immediately that something was going on here, and it would not be it would it would not be conducive to the purpose that he had of coming and doing the work that he needed to do as far as the redemption of man. And so, I, they, so he he chose to uh, to uh, suppress that glory to keep it hidden. There was one time where he he uh, revealed his glory, and that was y'all have all heard the story about. Uh, where uh, when the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where uh, I think it was John and uh, Peter and uh, James were with him, and he was transfigured up there, and his glory was—he had full glory there. His, you know, his uh, clothing turned bright white, his whole countenance turned white. That was the one time that he probably revealed his glory. I think it was the only time uh, that he actually showed his glory in there. <clears throat> so, the, uh, Hebrews three, uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse three, in the Amplified. We talked about this in Lesson 5. It said, the, the sun is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God, reflecting God's Shekinah glory, the light being the brilliant light of the divine and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence. And I brought that up because it says reflecting, the, reflecting God's Shekinah glory. The, the word Shekinah is not in the Bible Per se, it's not a it's not a word that you'll find in there. But what that means, Shekinah, it, it means, has been used by uh, Christians and Jews to describe the visible divine presence of God. And we see that we saw that uh, we, we've seen that multiple times in the Old Testament, uh, represented by the the when Moses had the burning bush experience, uh, the, the clouds and pillars of of, of the, the pillar of fire in the wilderness. That was a that was an example of, of the Shekinah glory of God uh, directing them through the wilderness for those 40 years. Uh, the presence, like we talked about last week, the presence between the cherubim on the mercy seat of uh, the ark in the, in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. That's another uh, example. And the presence that was filling, you remember the story about when uh, the temple, the first temple was built by Solomon and the, and the presence of God filled that temple. That was a, a presence. That was a Shekinah glory. Uh, the, of the filling the temple, even though it might not have been the bright light, it was so filled with the presence and the glory that no man could go in. So that's the things we're talking about. That's you know he give up that Shekinah glory, the expression, the exercise and expression of his glory when he came to be uh, a uh, a lowly human, uh, what would be considered a lowly human in in contrast to him being God. And then this, when Charles Hodge said sometimes he chose not to use his other powers, though he retained them fully. I was thinking about that a while ago. We were talking about, you know, some of the, some of the divine things he did and some of the things that he did as a human. You know, he walked every place he went. 
he didn't he didn't uh, he didn't just have uh, like the angels come and say hey I need a like a angel cab you know come by and pick him up and say I need to go over to to um, uh, Capernaum today so take me a ride you know he walked across the water uh, keep that in mind he he walked across the water you know he could have got angels to take him across there but he walked so he was limiting his power even though he was walking on top of the water he's still walking right so I mean that's what we're saying he he had to walk everywhere he went. So, uh, and it, you can look at this, it's, it's like a prince when we're talking about going from where he was to where he, where he was to where he is or was on the earth. It's like a prince from a royal family leaving the palace and putting on ragged clothes and walking down the street. He has divested himself of his position, but not his person. Without the privileges of the palace and the trappings of his position, he is now unrecognizable and seemingly in disguise, even though he no longer appears to be the prince by his nature and his bloodline, he will always be the prince. It's kind of, I don't know if you ever read that book, The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. Most, most of us older people have read it probably, but uh, uh, it's kind of a story like that where there was a, a prince and a, a two twin, a twin boys that didn't, but you just need to go read it. But uh, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm not gonna get into explaining it, but it's two boys switched positions. The, the boy that was a prince switched position with the pauper and vice versa and they, they learned uh, life on the on the on the different side of the street, or the railroad track, as you as we would say, you know, it's it's it was an entertaining story. But that's I mean that was just an example of saying uh, how that could be. But remember this, and and when I say that he he was always he would always be the prince. God Jesus would always be God, no matter what. That's the reality of his position was he was always God, no matter whether he come from heaven or he come to earth. He still retained his uh, his. Uh, position of God, the second person of the Trinity. Hebrews 13.8 uh, says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No change. It means from eternity past to eternity future. He's, he's, just, he's saying he did come as a man. Uh, that's when he took on the, the bodily form of the man. Now, here's additional word study that would help us. I'm, this, these are, this is where we're going to get into a little bit of Greek, and, and hopefully it won't be too boring for you, but I think you'll see some things in here that uh, help us to understand uh, what this verse is trying to tell us uh, about this. So in verse 6, I'm just going to take some, uh, some uh, verse by verse and a few word by word, but verse 6 says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So the being, the Greek word uh, is just mainly says existing in the form of God. It's Greek word, huperkaian. And it describes that which a man is in very essence and which cannot be changed. That which a man is and cannot be changed. Too bad we're not sending this to the transgender people, right? That which is a man in very essence and which cannot be changed. I don't care what they say. You can't change what your very essence is. You're either a woman or a man, and there's only two, and you can't change that. I don't care what kind of things they do to you. But anyway, that's a side note. And so that, that's what a man is very, so being in the form of God, in other words, being God, he couldn't change that. That couldn't change. And then the form, the word form right there, the form of God, it's a Greek word, morphe, which means an outward expression that embodies essential inner substance so that the form is in complete harmony with the inner essence. Better maybe, better maybe I'll use this short definition, the outward appearance of an inward reality. Jesus exists as the very essence of God, which cannot change. Uh, 
and then did not consider it robbery. This is a difficult passage or, or, or word to understand because it's a little bit the way it's written in the King James and the New King James. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The Greek word here is har harpagmos. It means to seize, especially by an open display of force, to hold tightly onto something. Jesus did not consider his equality with God as something to continue to hold on to jealously, but laid it willingly aside for the sake of man and the plan of redemption. Now, a couple of other translations make it a little easier to understand, like the Holman Christian Standard Bible says that same package who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Or the Amplified Classic Edition says did not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained. In other words, he, he gave that, that part of it up. But he's, in this, and seven says he stripped himself of all privilege and the rightful dignity, which is, a, is, a, is pointing to the uh, dignity of his glory. And then the Amplified Bible says this, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted as if he did not already possess it or was afraid of losing it. In other words, he was able to release that, that part of uh, uh, his glory uh, and, and become man for the, for the sake of man and for the plan of redemption. So the kenosis, the, the emptying out, the emptying or, or making himself of no reputation was a self-renunciation, not in emptying himself of deity, nor was it an exchange of deity for humanity. Jesus never ceased to be God during any part of his earthly ministry. He did, he did set aside his heavenly glory. He also voluntarily refrained from using his divinity to make his way easier. That's what I was talking about. You know, he still walked across the water. He, he had to walk, but... He made it. He didn't use that. That uh, he didn't use any of his divinity to be make it an advantage for himself. And during his earthly ministry, Christ completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. So he was always in submission to the Father. John five nineteen. You'll read this. I mean, there's several passages we could read, but this is one. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do no nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does. The Son also does in like manner. So as part of the kenosis, Jesus sometimes operated within the limitations of humanity. God does not get tired or thirsty, but Jesus did. That was part of his humanity. John 4, 6, we remember this, the, the, the episode at Jacob's well. Uh, the, the verse says, now Jacob's well was there, Jesus there, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. So both right there in that passage, he was tired, and he needed a drink. He was thirsty. And God knows all things, but it seems that at least once, Jesus voluntarily surrendered the use of his omniscience. In other words, his knowing everything. Uh, Matthew 24, 36 uh, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Talking about the, the time when he, all things will be over and he'll be coming back. And he says he doesn't know that time. He, he's, that's the, the Father's knowledge and not his. And other times, Jesus' omniscience was on full display. He knew who would betray him. He knew the thoughts of men at times. He knew what he, could, he would go through at the crucifixion. And I give you three reference scriptures there. You can go look at them up and read them. On your own time, we won't do that now. But see, he, 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 uh, he knew all these things. He knew the thoughts of men many times when they were talking about him. He already knew them before they even uh, uh, 
when they were saying things, he, he knew, he, he perceived what they were talking about. And there are some that could be, there are some people, preachers, that could be labeled as false teachers who take the concept of kenosis too far, saying that Jesus gave up all or some of his divine nature when he came to earth. This heresy is sometimes referred to as the kenosis theory, or a better term, kenoticism or kenotic theology, to, to distinguish it from the biblical understanding of kenosis. This is precisely why we need to be ready to give an answer inside and outside the church. Basically what, you know, I mean, if we believe what we believe about what we've written down in AOL, that God was in our AOL beliefs, that God is fully God and fully man, then how could he give up being deity coming to earth in other words, they some say that he he gave up completely. He was he was uh, he was no longer God when he come to Earth as a man, and uh, so we we uh, we go against we come against that. So when it comes to kenosis, we often focus too much on what Jesus gave up. But the kenosis also deals with what Christ took on. Jesus added to his divine nature a human nature as he humbled himself for us. Jesus went from being the glory of glories in the heaven to be in a human being who is put to a humiliating death on the cross. Philippians 2, uh, 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8 declares, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and be became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Again, there's the word form. It's morphe, so he, he, he was still God, but he was also in the form of man, uh, same as in verse 6, but I'll use the short definition, the outward expression of an inward reality. It, seems, it simply means that when Jesus became a man, it was no play acting, it was a reality. Matter of fact, I think it's the, I can't remember if it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed where they laid down the, the very things that we believe in, but it, it, they, they wrote it down as, what they believe in. Very, he was very God and very man. That's the exact wording they used. And so when we see the word bondservant there, which is Greek for uh, doulos, uh, properly, someone who belongs to another. In other words, he says bondservant. Uh, he is another, a bond slave uh, without any ownership rights of their own. This was the lowest of the low on the totem pole when we're talking about uh, a slave. I had another note about that. You know that yet yeah, that word, ironically, doulos, bondservant. Uh, it was the lowest slave that you could do. But you know, ironically, that uh, it is also used in the highest dignity in the New Testament, namely of believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as His devoted follower. And uh, you can find that if you go do a Greek search word search on that. When Paul was, he wrote many of his epistles or in the letters that he wrote. Yeah, many of them, he started out, uh, I, Paul, a bondservant to the Lord. He was calling himself the same thing, I, Paul, a doulos, a, a lowly uh, slave, a bond slave with no ownership rights of my own. And that's the way he described it. But anyway, that's, that's what this word is saying right here. He took the form of a slave or bondservant coming, coming again, the Greek word com uh, for, for coming is uh, genomai, uh, Properly to emerge, become, transition from one point or realm of, or condition to another. In other words, he's coming from the glories of heaven to the humble state of man. And then he comes in the likeness of men, which the Greek word is homo, homo yoima, 
which means the same, properly the same as likeness, similitude, or resemblance. Basically, it's just saying he come in the in the in the uh, similitude of man and re was really a man. Now, as we talked about when we were talking about uh, our our uh, cults, the the time we talked about it, and one of the th and not necessarily a cult, but is a a false religion is Gnosticism. You know, they did they believe that Jesus came, but he wasn't real. So you know, this is just to verify, you know, that he really was a real man uh, in the likeness of men, in the form of men, uh, of man. He was, a, he was the reality, uh, the express uh, image of, uh, in, in reality of a man. So Jesus took on this outward appearance of a man, a bondservant, and it was no, more than just a, an appearance. It was the reality uh, of man, a bondservant, a slave, by humbly submitting himself in obedience to God's will for man's sake. First, he died as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And second, he died on the cross. And we're, we're, we're all familiar with Isaiah 53's, uh, that passage, 4 through 6. Uh, surely he has borne our griefs. This is talking, telling us about Jesus uh, and, and, and it's uh, prophet, prophetic about Jesus. He, he, uh, <clears throat> surely he was, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, it was Christ's death on the cross that especially gave him the outward appearance of a slave. So many, so many slaves were crucified in the Roman Empire, that crucifixion at that time was called the slave's punishment. In light of this, because Christ died on the cross, people of this day would have classified him with slaves. Can you imagine that? I mean, I mean, thinking about that, how humiliating uh, death our Savior did for us, being crucified on a cross in the public, stripped naked, hanging on the cross. And and from what I understand about the crucifixion, it, it's a, you die as much from asphyxiation as you do anything else because you're trying to breathe. And the way they have got you hung on there is you're struggling to get catch a breath. And uh, you think about how humiliating that was. And he was hung on the cross at 9 o'clock. He, he passed by 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He's hung on there for six hours uh, suffering that. We have to see something in that that... Um, uh, I made a note here. You know, you remember, I mean, it was a humiliating death. It was a death that, uh, that the people called for. When You remember at Pilate's uh, trial, he said, he, he, he said to the people after he examined me and washed his hands and said, I find no fault in this man. And he said, what shall I do for him? And the people that were standing there, they, they yelled. What did they yell? Crucify him, right? Crucify him, crucify him. They knew what he was going to end up with on the cross. And, you know, I, I wrote, I, I thought to myself right there, you know, you know, part of the people that were there were just people that were probably following him just a few days before, or, or may, they might have been part of the crowd that laid the, the uh, branches of, of, uh, uh, in front of him and, and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the, name of the, is the name of the Lord, you know, at the same time. But these were the same people. You know what I think those people were? I consider those people at that time, they were probably the woke crowd of that first century, you know? They were, weren't they? Yeah, they were. That's the kind. Of, so you can they, take that in context for the woke crowd we have nowadays, you know, that uh, they think they know it, but they don't know it. 
Uh, they think they're awake, but they're not awake. In this ultimate act of humility and love, the God of the universe became a human slave and died for his creation. He is the supreme example of humility. And I believe this is what Paul is showing to the church at Philippi. That's why I wanted to put this. Um, uh, there's two verses. This is, this, this is another verse we need to see. But uh, as, uh, for context purposes right here, the, the leading into this verse number five that we just read earlier, Paul's writing to them. He knows there's struggles in the Philippian church. He knows there's, there's a selfish ambition going on. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And then where we started a while ago, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. See, he's pointing the first part of that and, and saying, let this mind, he's, he's teaching. This is a teaching moment for them as he's writing this letter. I, I look at this and I said, there's a lesson to be learned in the study of the kenosis or the emptying out of, of, of himself and Jesus. It says, let us consider the big picture of what is trying to be. This is just a note I wrote and I forgot to include it in this, but uh, think about this. Let, uh, he said, let us consider the big picture of what is trying to be shown to the church when Paul wrote this. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Whatever Suppose, think about this in your own life. Whatever supposed privileges we possess, can we set them aside in our service to others? Jesus did not cling to his heavenly throne. Should we cling to our earthly positions of honor and reputation or recognition? Jesus is the king of glory, yet he chose to cloak the glory to reside among men in humility, not taking advantage of the reality of who he really was. We should also be willing to empty ourselves just as Jesus did, Whatever honor we have among men, we should never use to our advantage over others, but to serve others. So, and because of the obedience of Jesus and the love of the Father, we have this. Jesus went from the lowness of humiliation to the highest of exaltation. And we end up with our, our scripture that I wanted to close with, Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore, and remember when we see the word therefore, we always look back and we've already talked about those preceding scriptures. He says, therefore, because what I've told you about what Jesus did, where he went from uh, and, and he, he took on the, 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 uh, the countenance of man and died for our sins and, and died the most humiliating death on there. He says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.